Well, this morning, uh, we are wrapping up a series we've been doing together for the last eight weeks called Living Church. If you've been with us, and even if you haven't, I just uh, mentioned on the back of the bulletin there, I wrote a bulletin column that kind of sums up what the purpose of this series was and what uh, the kind of things that we were looking at. And really, the main question we've been asking throughout this series is what kind of things do we need to devote ourselves to as a church in order to stay a living church? The last thing we want is to be a dead church. We want to be alive to who Christ has created us to be, alive to his mission and purpose for us in this world. And just as a reminder, uh, you see up here on the banners on uh, either side of the screen there, that's the mission we sense God has given us. We sense at Cherry Hills we are called to love the Lord, love one another, and serve the world. And we want to be alive to those things. And so this morning we wrap up the series and I really get to cover uh, that last one there. I'm going to cut right to the chase with you about serving the world. If you're following on your notes, if you like using notes and you're following along, the very first line there is, there is no such thing as a living church that isn't serving the world. There is no such thing as a living church that isn't serving the world. If we really want to be alive to God's purpose for us as a church, lowercase c and capital C, then we are called to serve the world. For me, when I think about the title of this series, Living Church, this message really became the culmination of it. You see, much of what we've been looking at in this series is what we do when we gather here together as the church, or perhaps in our homes and life groups and other things like that. But it's kind of like, what do we do when we're with other believers, other than that first message that Jeff gave? Now, all of those things are important, yes? They are vitally important to being the church God has created us to be, and yet, Here's what I want us to leave with today. None of that stuff is just supposed to end here on Sunday morning in this room. Contrary to some popular belief today, the church does not exist for the church. The church exists for the sake of the world. And a living church understands we live church. We are not a building called Cherry Hills. We are the people called Cherry Hills, and God has sent us into this world Monday through Sunday. You know, the early church understood this well uh, in Acts chapter 2, which we've been looking at the book of Acts to kind of see what the early church devoted themselves to. That's where we've gotten a lot of the ideas here. But you remember, all the disciples are afraid, they're praying, they're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to come, and the Spirit comes, and what's the very first thing they do? They are out in the streets of Jerusalem, right? They are understanding they're not just meant to stay up in the upper room forever they are sent out people and so that's exactly what they do listen jesus never intended to save us and then lock us up in nice little church buildings that was not his purpose or his mission for us if you're falling on your notes we are people on a mission in this world we are commissioned for a mission and we're going to talk about that mission today now let me make this personal we like to say around here, if you're visiting, you know, the vision we have is that we are declaring war on what? Shallow Christianity, beginning with ourselves. And I just want to straight, be straight up right now. You can't declare war on shallow Christianity by adding another Bible study. Are Bible studies important? You better believe it. It fills us up, right? Or by even fellowshipping with other believers or, you know, coming to church seven days a week. 
is not going to necessarily help you declare war. It helps, don't get me wrong, it helps fill us out. But really, the rubber meets the road is when we stop filling ourselves up only and start pouring ourselves out. Let me give you an illustration here. Right here, I have a bowl of water and a sponge. And a lot of us, I, I confess to this, I'm a lot like this sponge, right? I love being here with you. I love being around other believers. You know why? Because... Oh, you guys just fill me up. Jesus fills me up. I love worshiping. I love singing. I love praying. I love hearing the word being preached. I'm being filled up. I'm being filled up as a person. Yeah, but what happens eventually to someone who's being filled up? You can't take in anymore, can you? At some point, what do I have to do with all this amazing stuff God has given me? I got to pour it back out. I got to pour it back out, and that is exactly how God has designed us as the church. We come here and we are filled up. We meet together in life groups. We are filled up. We hear the word being preached. We go to Bible studies, all incredibly important things. We are baptized fully in Jesus Christ, and yet, all of us are called at that point then to pour out. Christ in the lives of other people. I am convinced we cannot declare war on shallow Christianity until we start pouring our lives away. That's when it happens. This is the word Jesus gave to us as the church. He says the same thing, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's very familiar, but it never has lost its power for me. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He is going to give us in this passage two unforgettable images about what the purpose is of your life as an individual follower of Jesus, if that's who you are, but also our purpose as a living church. So if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you, there's some black Bibles there in the seat rack in front of you. You can find this on page 677. And as you're turning there, let me just pray and ask God uh, to be present with us this morning. Lord, you are already present. We acknowledge that. We've praised you. We pray that you are blessed by the words that we sang together. And now, Lord, we pray that you are equally blessed by our time opening up your scripture, your gift to us. Help us to see that a living church is not living unless it is serving the world. That's what we want to be for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, to set the context, Matthew chapter 5 is the very beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke, right? Matthew 5 through 8, three years ago, we spent uh, almost the entire spring walking through the Sermon on the Mount together as a church. It was a powerful thing. Some have said it's the greatest sermon ever preached. I couldn't agree more. I don't know about you. And if you have your Bible open on verse 13, do me a little favor. Look at the section that's right above where verse 13 starts. Is there a title in your Bible? What does it call that little section starting in verse 1 of chapter 5? What's that called? The Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes come right before verse 13, and we've often called the Beatitudes the beautiful attitudes that we have now as followers of Jesus Christ. It's what happens to us internally when Christ comes into our lives. These are the things that are kind of the result in our heart, and I've always found it really interesting that immediately following these inward transformation in the life of a believer, the very next words out of Jesus' mouth is his mission for the church. And if you think about it, it actually makes total sense, doesn't it? Again, if you're falling on your notes, once we're transformed inside, it extends outside. It's like that sponge 
Once we have been filled up in our lives with God's grace and our goodness, we can't help but pour it back out in this world. So let's read these incredible verses together here. I'll read it in its entirety, 13 through 15, and we'll come back and make some comments. Verse 13 says, you, and I just got to say, it's important you understand who Jesus is addressing here. The you there is an emphatic word. It means you, my followers. You, my disciples, and no one else, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Three simple verses, but two unforgettable images. I mean, who in the world is not at least a little bit familiar with salt and light? Every culture, perhaps every home throughout our world is familiar with these two basic household items. Now, today in the United States, what do we use salt for? To flavor our food, right? It's a spice that we use to flavor our food. But we've got to understand, in biblical times, salt was not only used as a spice, most importantly, it was used as a preservative. It's what kept things from decaying, and so uh, people would take salt or perhaps create a saline solution, and they would put their meat inside of that, or they'd rub the meat in there in order to slow down the decay. You don't believe it or not, refrigerators weren't invented in the first century. They didn't have that ability, and so they used salt to, de to delay the decay. Now, just think about that image for a minute. Of course, everybody is familiar with light, right? It's a universal religious symbol, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Light is used to contrast truth with error. It's used to contrast knowledge to ignorance. And so Jesus uses this metaphor. He says, you know, it's like a city on a hill. Have you ever been driving in the flat plains and all of a sudden up comes this mountain and there's this city on top of the hill? You can't hide it, right? If the lights are all being lit, if the lamps are on, you cannot hide a city on a hill. And Jesus says that's the same way about light. You just can't hide it. And he goes on to say if you light a lamp, the point of it wouldn't be to then put it under a bowl or put it in a cupboard. The whole point of light is to dispel darkness. These are the images Jesus uses to indicate the kind of impact he wants the church to have. If you're following, Jesus calls his disciples to be salt and light in the world. You've heard that. Now the question becomes, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? What can we deduce from these images? And I believe Jesus wants us as his disciples today to understand three very important things about these images. Number one, again, if you're following there, the church is to be radically different from society. The church is to be radically different from society. Now listen, if I stood up here and said those words, hey, the church is the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it'd be one of the most arrogant things we could say, isn't it? I mean, let's go out and tell everybody how good we are. But we're not the ones who said it. Jesus is the one who said it. He says, on the one hand, there is the world, which is a dark place. And I have called out some disciples to be light in that dark place. Again, on the one hand, there is the world which is like decaying meat. And yet I have called out some to be called my disciples to be like a preservative, to be like salt 
in that meat, hindering the decay of society. This idea is a major theme throughout the entire scriptures, Old Testament and New, right? God calls out a people for himself to be different from the prevailing culture. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1. Let's read these words out loud together up on the screen. They say, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means we are set apart for God's special purposes. Now here's the question on the table. Are we? Are we really being that different from the society around us? Are we radically different? Are we set apart in this world? And people can see a difference in us. In a recent poll, George Barna compared the lifestyles of Christians and non-Christians. He used 131 different measures of attitudes, behaviors, values, and beliefs. Here's his conclusion, and I quote, In the aspects of lifestyle where Christians can have their greatest impact on the lives of non-Christians, there are no visible differences between the two segments. I mean, how is the world ever going to discover the light of Christ when they see nothing different in us than they see in themselves? If you're following on your notes, we must keep our distinctness to be effective. We must keep our distinctive to be effective. Or Jesus put it this way, what good is salt? What good is salt if it loses its saltiness? You might as well throw it away. It's useless. In the same way, what good is light if you hide it in a cupboard? It's defeating the whole purpose. Similarly, listen, if we want to be a living church that is positively influencing our society, what does it mean? Number one, it means we must refuse to conform to society. And this means specifically and practically that we retain our Christian convictions and our values and our standards and our lifestyles that we find in God's word, the Bible. We live according to the way God has set us apart to live. Otherwise, we will have no effect in this world. Listen, here's what I believe is at stake here. People really aren't that interested in fancy church services. I'm not saying there haven't been people who have come to Christ because of an amazing church service. It happens. It happens a lot. What I am convinced of, however, if you're following on your notes, is that people are drawn to God when we live out our faith. When you live out your faith as a disciple of Christ, when I live out my faith as a follower of Jesus, that's when people are really drawn to God. Many of you know what is another result of salt if you have too much of it. You become thirsty. A lot of salt makes you thirsty, doesn't it? Jesus had that effect on people. We just finished a series last year in the Gospel of John called Encountering Christ. And one of the big takeaways we took from that series is that every time Jesus encountered someone, whether it was a Pharisee like Nicodemus or a castaway like Mary Magdalene, they became thirsty for God, just being with him. Are we having the same effect on the people around us? Are they becoming thirsty for Jesus? I'll ask you, are we being salty enough? Are we being salty enough? Friends, if our Christianity is real, we need to live it. If we're not living it, if we are not living it, what good are our claims? What good are our claims? 
about a life-changing message we find in Jesus, about salvation and about the abundant life. We need to outlive the world at every point. In our marriages, with our children, at work, with money, materialism, the way we view our relationships, the use of our time, I could go on. We are called to be different. We are set apart for God's purposes. And I think declaring war on shallow Christianity comes down to this. Am I willing to be radically different? Am I be willing to be radically different as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Second thing I believe Jesus is teaching with these images is that the church is called to permeate our society. Permeate our society. Number one, we're called to be different. But we can be different and, not, and just like stay here and do nothing, right? Number two, obviously in those images, Jesus is calling us now to take that difference into the world, to permeate our society. I addressed this a little bit in the beginning of the message, but the purpose of the church is not just for us to grow as individuals, not even to just grow together. On the contrary, we are to let our light, what? Shine. I mean, we sang a great song about that. Penetrate the darkness You don't light a lamp, he says, and then put it in a cupboard. Put a bowl over it. That's pointless. Similarly, like with salt. What does salt have to do, if you think of it in terms of a preservative or even as a spice? What do you have to do with salt in order for it to be effective? You've got to pour it on. You've got to rub it in. You've got to rub it in. We must allow God to rub us into this world without becoming like the world. Both examples illustrate this idea of permeating, right? Permeating our society. But John Stott challenges us so well when he writes, too many of us hide away in our dark little cupboards and stay snug in our elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Isn't that a great quote? It's great because it's true. I I know it's true for me as well at times in my life. A couple weeks ago, I'm driving... Our six-year-old son, uh, he's in the back, and he asks me what that thing is that's hanging up on my passenger side window visor. And I had, I didn't even put it there. It's been there for six years. It was one of those fragrance things, you know, that you can hang up there, and it's supposed to create a nice smell in your car. I didn't even know, I didn't even remember that it was there. It's just been there for like five or six years. He goes, what is that? He goes, oh, that's supposed to make the car smell better. And he's like, well, I don't smell anything. Does that happen to the church? I mean, there we are. Five, six, a hundred, two hundred years. The real question is, are we making any difference in the environment into which God has placed us? Are we permeating society? Are we penetrating the darkness? How do we do it? We become involved. We become involved in our community, in our schools, in, our pol- in the politics, in our neighborhoods, in the world. Are we doing it? Listen, there's no way for salt not to have an impact on something that it's introduced with, right? It immediately has an impact on it. There's no way for light to be obscured on the city of a hill. Who are we in contact with? Who are we shining our light to? If you're falling on your notes, a living church is a church that influences its community, period. There's going to be an influence in the community if a living church is a living church. And that leads me to number three, which may sound redundant at first, but just stick with me because it's a little bit of a different thing. 
if you're following again, the church really can influence and change society. It really can. I think today, would you agree with me? Just nod your head. We live in a very cynical and skeptical world right now, don't we? And it has crept into the church, if we're honest. It's crept into the church. Tell me you haven't had these thoughts, because these are straight from my brain sometimes. I read a passage like this, and I wonder, honestly, if Jesus is being a little bit too idealistic here. Doesn't he understand what we're up against in the culture? I mean, they're not open to the gospel anymore. They're not open to our message. On the contrary, they seem to be going the opposite way. Have you ever had thoughts like that? What difference, honestly, can we make today in this world? And sometimes, if I'm honest, I just kind of like the safe confines we have here with you. I feel more comfortable. You understand me. Um, It's just safe. It's just safe. But you know, Jesus never called us to be safe. He never called us to be safe, nor was he speaking idealistically. He called us to be salt and light in this world, and he meant it. He meant that we actually could. We could actually make a difference when we introduce ourselves, when we permeate ourselves in our community. So the question is, that leads to the obvious question, which is why aren't we having more effect on society then? And I'm going to tread very carefully here, because I don't want to offend anyone, but I kind of do want to offend us. Because this is the typical response to that. Why aren't we having an effect on society? It's society's fault. Yeah? It's society's fault. I've thought and heard these very things. Society has fallen apart. Kids these days. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Now, I'm not saying none of those things are true, but consider this. Think about this. If a house is dark at night... Do we blame the house? I mean, when the sun goes down, that's just naturally going to happen, right? The question actually to ask is, where's the light? If you come home and there's a rotting piece of fish on your counter, do you blame the fish? No, he would say, oh, where was the preservative? Where's the salt? Where's the refrigerator? In a similar way, if we have a problem today with where society is headed, there's no sense in blaming society. I mean, you know, right, if you've read the Bible? We shouldn't be surprised this is where the world is headed right now. So why are we surprised and why do we complain? We of all people should know. The question to ask is, where is the church? Not what's wrong with society. Now, I am not suggesting here that we are ever going to perfect society or our community. That isn't happening until Jesus returns in all his glory. However, what I am saying, if you're following on your notes there, is while we can't perfect society, we can improve it. We can improve it. You know, history is full of examples of Christians who have made a huge impact on the community, on the world at large, because they believe this. They really believe they could be salt and light. I mean, I could give you examples in in the health and hygiene. Christians were instrumental in bringing that to the world. In the abolition of slavery and the slave trade. It was a lot of Christians who were important in that for better conditions in mines, factories, and prisons, for the greater availability of literacy and education. 
you know, Christians played an active role in that. Now, I'm not saying that only Christians did that. They weren't the only ones involved in those things, but they did play a hugely important role if you go back and read through history. Why? Because they believed they could, period. They actually believed when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, that he meant it. He really meant it. Friends, this morning when I got up to pray and just to be prepared for this morning, I had to repent of my pessimism. And I wonder if the church with a capital C doesn't need to do the same thing. Repent of this idea that we really can't make a difference in our society. He has called us to, and he has fully equipped us to. You know, Jesus, I often think of the Great Commission. We find it in Matthew 28. Immediately I go to where he says, go and make disciples. That's just my natural inclination. That's the actual commission, right? But I often forget about the verse right before that. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. If that's true, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, how can I not give my life to being salt and light in this world? Well, that's leading us to the next question, which is how do we do that? I want to do it. How do we do it? Jesus gives us the answer. Thank you, Jesus. Let's read verse 16 out loud together. He doesn't even make it complicated. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Notice, not a suggestion for a living church. It's a command. Let your light shine. How? How do we do it, Jesus? It's right there. If you're falling on your notes, we shine in this world through what? Good deeds of service. We, the church, shine in this world through good deeds of service. That's his plan for us. Jesus didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about religious services, although they're a good thing. He didn't spend a lot of time uh, talking about small groups or buildings. They're all important things to be in a living church. But he did talk a lot about the impact he expected those who call upon his name, those who say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He talked a lot about the impact we are to have in this world. Now for our church, for Cherry Hills, this means that the city of Springfield and its surrounding communities, Chatham and others, they're not going to be very impressed by how many people attend here. I don't think they care. I don't think they care how many people are on staff, or I don't think they even care how well we run our programs. The only thing I think anymore today that is really going to turn someone's head and say, well, that's different, is exactly what Jesus describes here, through good deeds of service in our community. That's when people notice. So you see some of these pictures. It's when people pick up a hammer or tutor a child or sit with an elderly person or serve at the homeless shelter or come alongside the widows and the orphans and the least of these. That's when a cynical world begins to take notice. Amen? People who are far from God say, well, that's different. That's different, and the kingdom of light begins to slowly make its way and permeate within our community and society. Honest, compassionate service. Now, I want to make two sub-points to that, and these are very important. First and foremost, as Jeff mentioned in the very first week of this series, I hope we leave here understanding that one of the most important good deeds that we can do as a church is to tell others the message of Christ. 
to be his witnesses. That he is a real person and that he really loves you and me. He loves us so much, in fact, that he sent his only son to die on our behalf so we could have life eternal with him. It's a good deed for us to tell others about that, isn't it? In fact, if you're following on your notes there, I believe that today, uh, I'm not ready for the notes yet, I'm sorry, I just want to say something. (laughs) Here's what I've learned about today, though. People don't care so much about the message until we can show them that the message has made an impact. That's the point I wanted to make right there, right? Good deeds are important because they're like a bridge allowing us the opportunity to build a bridge in between a relationship with other people that then gives us the opportunity to tell others the gospel. Now, if you're falling on your notes, people want more than arguments for faith. I mean, don't they? They, don't, they want to be argued into the faith. They want proof. They want proof. You know the saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's so true. It's so true. We, that's why we say here, when we talk about serve the world, we say that's two components. We want to show and tell the good news of Jesus. We show it through good deeds, but we also tell it. And that leads me to the second point, and I want to be very clear about this too. We don't just do good deeds. We're not just involved in the good deeds business in order to gain some sort of platform to tell the message. Have you ever heard churches talk about that? Let's elevate telling the gospel and showing the gospel. Well, that's a good way to to trap people. That's not at all the purpose of good deeds. Anytime we feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, clothe the shivering, companionship to the lonely, health to the sick, hospitality to the stranger, we are doing something to the heart of God. Good deeds are not just a means to an end. That's what I want us to understand. If you're following on your notes there, that's the line. Good deeds are not just a means to an end. We've got to get rid of that thought. In church history, you understand if you've ever studied it, these two things have been what's constantly been out of balance. You've got churches that are all about showing, and they don't tell anymore. They don't tell anymore the truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But then you got the other side of it where there are churches who are all about telling, and there's no love or compassion or honesty behind their message. Jesus says, right here, right here. This is what it means to serve the world. I want to be clear about those things. So that's how we are salt and light in this community. So the last question is why? Why should we even bother with this? And again, Jesus gives us the answer. He says that they may see our good works and praise cherry hills. That's my version. That they may see our good works. Why do we serve? Why do we serve the world? So that they may praise our Father in heaven. If you're following on your notes there, all glory to God. The purpose of a living church is to bring glory to God. The purpose of Cherry Hills is not to bring glory to Cherry Hills. It is to bring glory to God. Can you just imagine if that started happening in this city? Where the leaders of Springfield were getting together and saying behind our backs how good it is to have us here? I mean, that'd be a little different. And I know because of many of you, that's already happening. But if our neighborhoods and others just couldn't wait 
to see uh, the good deeds, the love of Christ being poured out. I've wondered, and we've asked this question on staff before, if Cherry Hills were to close its doors tomorrow, like we're done, would anybody notice? Would it even matter? The only way our community is going to notice is when we show them that we care about them. It's the only way, and that's what it means. That's what it means to bring glory to God through good deeds. That's what it means to be a living church that's really living church. If you're following on your notes there, to be the living church that is really living church, we must be focused on the mission Jesus gave us to serve the world all for his glory, not ours. Now, I want to say, we're going to shift gears a little bit here. There are many ways to do that, obviously. Many of you are already doing that. And I want to speak uh, to some of you this morning uh, who may already be serving in our community that are in no way related to what we're doing here as a church. Maybe you're a baseball coach for your son's team. Maybe you're involved actively in your children's school or a local organization or something. Here's what I'd want to say to you. Way to go. We never, ever want you to feel like if you're not involved in one of our local ministry partners, then it doesn't count. It counts tremendously. Keep doing what you are already doing. Please, thank you for being salt and light in this community, however God has maybe called you to do that. But who I want to really talk to now as we close this message is those of us who know we've been a little bit too much like the sponge. We've been filled up with God's grace and his power and we know this morning he is asking us to pour out our lives in some way in this city to you I want to challenge you this morning we are going to be getting out 10 minutes early of our service if I stay on time which is never a given (laughs) and the reason for that is because right down the hall if you take a left in rooms 201 to 204 we have 13 of our local ministry partners right here in the community of Springfield that have tables set up with information about who they are as a ministry and opportunities for you, for your family. Yes, there are family opportunities to serve as well, to potentially go and serve in some way. You can see on the back of your notes the 13 ministries there and a little sentence about their purpose and some about their vision and so forth. But literally, we want to practice what we teach today. Let's not just talk about serving. Let's actively be engaged in serving. And if you know he's calling you to be salt and light somewhere outside of these walls, and we want to make that available to you, I'm going to mention two really important things. Pay attention right now. If you have children who are involved in the children's ministry, I say two things to you. Please don't go get them 10 minutes early. Wait until 10.45 when the service is over because right at that time is when the most important stuff is kind of happening downstairs and we don't want to interrupt that. I would say on the other side of that though is don't wait too long. (laughs) If you find yourself engaged in some good conversations there at the the end of the hallway there, just kind of remember if they're going to assume that you're leaving your kid for the next uh, service if you don't go get them somewhere uh, between 10.45 and 11, okay? But let's Please respect that. Don't just get your kids and think, oh, there's a chance for me to get out early. Go grab a cup of coffee if you don't want to go down uh, to those rooms and and talk to someone, okay? So that's what we're going to do in the next 10 minutes. Before we do, I thought I would close with a story. This is a story I think doesn't only just close this sermon, this message. It closes this entire series about a living church. This was spoken by John Ortberg. I can't even remember now, about five or six years ago, and I've never, never forgotten it. 
It's one of the most powerful stories I've heard about the purpose of the church. And I'm going to read it, actually, because I know I'll mess it up if I don't. So just listen. Several years ago, we took a vacation, and we went to Massachusetts, and we visited a little museum on Nantucket Island. It was devoted to a volunteer organization that was formed centuries ago, over 300 years ago. In those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous, and given storms in the Atlantic Ocean and the real rocky coasts of Massachusetts, many, many lives were lost close to the shore within a mile or less of the land. And a group of people who lived on that island couldn't stand to think about all these people going down so close to them, so they went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was originally called the Humane Society. We think about animals with that name now, but in those days, that was a life-saving deal for them. They built these little huts that dotted the shore. You can still see them in that museum. They built little huts containing boats and rescue equipment. They were sometimes called huts of refuge. Huts of refuge. And people were posted in those huts all the time. And their job was to just keep watching the sea. Anytime a ship went down, the word would go out. They would devote everything. They would risk themselves to save every life they could. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, somebody was watching. Everybody was willing. They did it for no money. They did it for no recognition. They just did it because they prized human life. And to remind them how seriously they took this and what was at stake, they adopted a motto. I love this motto. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That's a catchy little recruiting slogan, don't you think? (laughs) You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Now, you wouldn't think that would entice a whole lot of people into joining them, but it did. It's a fascinating thing, he goes on to say, to read accounts in that museum of people who risked everything, even their lives, to save other people they had never met. Faces they had never seen, names they might not ever know. Over time, things changed, though. After a while, what would become, as the, become known as the U.S. Coast Guard started to take over their task. For a little while, the Coast Guard and the Life Saving Society worked side by side, but eventually the idea that carried the day was, let the professionals do it. They're better trained. They get paid for it. Volunteers stopped manning the little huts. They stopped searching the coastline for sinking ships. They stopped sending out teams to rescue people. And it's a funny thing. They couldn't bring themselves to disband. And the life-saving society still exists today. It meets every once in a while in Boston or someplace in New England to have dinners. And they hand out awards for things like community service. They enjoy each other's company. They sponsor programs. They get together. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. They don't scour the coastline anymore to see if anyone is going down. They don't know the thrill anymore of what it is to risk themselves to save a life that could perish. They don't speak those words to each other anymore. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. It happens all the time. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a month. But over time, a church forgets it is in the life-saving business. It usually doesn't disband at least not until much later. People still meet. They still enjoy each other's company. They still use words like community. They still have services and buildings and staffs and programs. They might even be involved in various forms of community service. They are just not sending out teams anymore for people who are going down. They are just not really scouring neighborhoods and offices, schools and networks and cities to see if somebody that needs them to be saved. They forgot maybe that Jesus put this rescue effort in the hands of us who would love the people of God so much and adopt for themselves the motto, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. And they have buildings, staffs, 
and budgets and meetings. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. It can happen to a church. It can happen to a small group. It can happen to an individual. And don't think it can't happen to us. Don't think it can't. Don't think it can't happen here. Whether or not we stay in the life-saving business is in your hands, he goes on to say. Jesus is still looking for people who are willing to go into the life-saving business. That's what the church does. That's what a living church does. Friends, people are drowning all around us, physically and spiritually. Will we be salt and light in this community, in this world, for the glory of God? Or let me make it personal for you, the last thing on the notes. Will I be salt and light by serving others for God's glory? Will I be salt and light by serving others for God's glory? Let's pray. Father, we first thank you for what you are doing here at Cherry Hills. But it's a reminder again this morning, it's not for our glory, it's for your glory that we even exist. You are the author and perfecter of this church, Jesus. You are its head. We want to be the kind of church, though, that is salt and light in this community. And so, Lord, I'm just going to pray very specifically right now, if there's someone in this room who knows that this message was for them, that they would take seriously the opportunity to just head down the hall now and get involved. It doesn't have to be anything huge, but remind us again that we are in the life-saving business. Let us never forget it. For your name, for your sake, for your glory, amen.